You would not be friends with most of the people in the Old Testament or want to be seen in public with them. And, and God doesn't seem to utter a peep as to why what they've done is wrong. It's doing something besides teaching us how to be moral people. Welcome everyone to the Faith Recovery Podcast, where three failed pastors, Alex, Kent, and Nathan, are seeking to recover from bad ideas about God and recover the faith. And that's actually the title of our series, Recovering Faith. And we're in episode 15. Last week, in episode 14, we began to apply our claim that the gospel is our only authority. And we said that in light of the gospel as our only authority, we should first evangelize, don't proselytize. And on that point, we discussed the importance of not trying to draw people with the group and the benefits of joining our group and trying to conform people to the norms of our group. But instead, we should seek to reach people by speaking the gospel, sowing the seed of the word of God, the gospel, and letting that message draw people and letting it change their lives. So that was first point, evangelize, don't proselytize. Second point was retool discipleship. And we said that the tool for discipleship is the cross. What was your analogy? Lord's gym. The Lord's gym. In the Lord's yeah. gym, there is only one It's only one piece of, piece equipment, of equipment, right? And yeah. that's the cross. So it's not more Bible study, it's not more church involvement, it's applying the cross. It's death to self. That's the only way to experience the resurrection life of Jesus at work in our lives. And that's what we're seeking. We're seeking resurrection. And it takes the cross to get that. Now, there's two more points we'll get to later in this series. But before we move on to those points, today we're going to camp out more on this uh, point number two, retool discipleship. Because Nathan has offered a few additional suggestions for what retooling discipleship would look like. And here's what they are. So here's our outline for today. Corporate prayer, gospel rehearsal, Loving confrontation. Yeah. Corporate prayer. Let's begin there. Don't we do that? Right? <laughs> well, I, I mean. Not that if, much. If I were to go to church on a regular basis. Yeah. <laughs> there would be people praying I don't front. know. I, I, think, I think people think they're doing corporate prayer maybe. It's like, well, we all show up and then somebody says a prayer and we're all in the room together. Yeah. Is that what you meant, Nathan? Not that much. No. Not that much. <laughs> Not so much. Yeah. What did you mean? Well, corporate prayer is where we're together. Everybody's free to utter a prayer that we're gathered for that intention. And that, you know, we're just kind of crying out to God as a group. Um, I don't see that happening a lot. Even, even in prayer movements, oftentimes that's more of a worship time or singing um it's i think it's very difficult at least in my experience it's been very difficult to get people to just gather to pray and say mm -hmm. let's just get together and we're not going to have you know nobody's on the stage there's not going to be any music unless we just begin to break out in song or something um but we're not going to no one's going to provide anything in advance or prepare anything in advance we're just going to gather to call on God together. And um, the reason that I think that that's essential, and by essential I mean critical to perform, but also at the essence of obeying the gospel, is because it is uh, an act of relinquishing ourselves into God, mm -hmm. to trusting Him with outcomes. Uh, and so within real intercessory types of prayer, we are um, really going to the cross in that we're resigning our own will and our own strength. Um, and we are looking to that resurrection hope and that power and that we're praying audaciously for things that uh, maybe the world would say aren't possible or that we have no right to ask for. And yet here we are. So I think that the very act of, of praying is obedience to the gospel. Um, and doing it together, it comes down to that, that one flesh thing that, 
that we are gathered in the Holy Spirit before the Holy Spirit and dwelt by the Holy Spirit. We are this one body praying together. There's something very powerful uh, about that as well. Uh, so you're saying it's like it's an expression of death to self. It's this tool of the cross. Yeah. Being applied. Yeah. And of resurrection faith. Well, and I wanted to chime in on that because, you know, at first I, I said, well, don't we already do that? And yeah. so you've already, you know, I think compared and contrast some things that, um, especially for my background in charismatic prayer movements, mm-hmm. um, would be very different in the sense that oftentimes in our, in our corporate church gatherings, we may have prayer, but it's either directed from someone at the front and everyone else is just silently you know, assenting or, you know, praying along in their heads. Or if it is more of a, you know, intentional group prayer time, it's still very directed in the sense that there's an outline, there's an agenda, you know, there's people on the stage kind of leading and making sure, you know, everything stays structured. But what you're talking about is much more, uh, you know, organic, really, is that Mm -hmm. in the sense that, um, we're coming with no agenda other than to be here together and pray. Yeah. Yeah, and it's it's this activating that economy of worship where you know we're really attending to God together. It draws us together. Everyone is an equal participant, and so there is this demonstration of this economy of the of the leveling influence of it that everyone has equal access it it gets back to that ephesians 2 that you know that both that we both have access through him to the father in one spirit that there is an activation of that truth when we pray when we pray together um and so i i think that speaking of recovering faith that the the Christian movement has been recovering probably for the past, I don't know, 1700 years since the edict of, of Milan and the council of Nicaea, when church began to, to be, be syncretized into a Roman, um, approach. And we, we began to, to go back and claim this kind of clergy laity distinction, this idea that there's a priest's class that's, that's worshiping God on behalf of the rest of the believers, um, in that moment, we began to refuse the idea that we are all the priests, that, you know, that we're all this priesthood. Um, and that, that's critical. It's essential to the gospel. But I think rather than lament and bemoan that that exists, that there's a clergy laity distinction at all in the church, that the best thing that ordinary Christians can do is just get together and pray. Um, and as we do that, then the power of God is going to be manifest and that God himself is going to affirm the priesthood of the believers as we gather to pray that we don't, we don't need to call on people in a priestly class to lay down their power. You know, we'll just move past them. We'll just go over their heads. Um, and that to me, that seems kind of a peaceful revolution. That's the kingdom of God. So God seems to just have a, a vested interest in the unity of his people, that he's there, he's nearby. So that's why I say corporate prayer. There's something beyond that. So someone may have a very serious prayer life as an individual, and they need that. But I, I think that God just really shows up and he acts when we are united in prayer and that prayer unites us. So there's this kind of exponential move that happens. Uh, I'm looking at Psalm 133. It says, how good and pleasant it is when God's people live together in unity. It is like precious oil poured on the head, running down on the beard, running down on Aaron's beard, running down on the collar of his robe. So there's this, uh, this connection between our unity and this priestly move toward God. Right. And so it says for there, it is as if the dew of Hermon were falling on Mount Zion for there, the Lord bestows his blessing, even life evermore. So there's this, our unity and our approach to God are kind of this one movement from God's perspective that, that heaven is a unity and that we become resonant with it as we pray together. For me, um, 
one of the great, you know, we, people look in the book of Acts and we see all of these examples that, that maybe wind our clock and we say, man, I'd like to be like that. But for me, it's, it's Acts 13, 1 through 3. Uh, it says, now in the church at Antioch, there were prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simon called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, who was brought up with Herod the Tetrarch and Saul. And while they were worshiping, um, and the older translations say they were ministering to the Lord. Mm-hmm. There's this idea of it's a very priestly thing. You know, there's this latreia, this idea that you're, you know, you're offering something up, right? Uh, the ministering to the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I've called them. So after they had fasted and prayed, they placed their hands on them and sent them off. I like this because it's just five dudes. You know, we, they didn't need to start a movement and call together at least, you know, 200 people. Critical mass was just five guys that were serious about God. Um, and they were, you know, they're just highly devoted that they're praying and fasting. And then the Holy Spirit does something in their responses to fast and pray. <laughs> You know, yesterday I prayed and fasted, but today I'm going to fast and pray. Gonna mix it up. Right? <laughs> you know, they had a very simple approach. That was the, there was this instinctive, almost devotional life that they shared and that the Holy Spirit shows up. Um, you know, if we want to get somebody out on the mission field, what do we do? Hmm. Uh, go out and have rallies and try to convince people to go on the mission field. Yeah. And then what? Right? We have to set up. Send them to training school. Have mm-hmm. them support raise. Yeah, raise money. Yeah. And maybe maybe all that's fine, but it seems that at least Paul and Barnabas didn't need it. I mean, maybe if they had more training, they wouldn't have split up later. I don't know. Uh, I, I don't know if that saved very, mission, very many mission attempts um the trainings that yeah, they go through but didn't help us yeah <laughs> yeah but here's here's an, an example of of mobilization but mobilization didn't begin with the intent to mobilize it began with an intent to worship god and to really apply the gospel where they were it doesn't seem that any of them had a vision beyond antioch in that moment you know, that they're, they're teachers in that church. They're gathering to fast and pray. But the Holy Spirit then intervenes. He steps in to guide. And um, that seems like a pretty powerful, you know, we talked last time about the guidance of the Holy Spirit. You know, if you're in the middle of corporate fasting and prayer and the Holy Spirit just audibly says, get up and go, you know, um, then you don't have to wonder. And... And I think their reaction was great that, you know, they didn't really have to do a lot of preparation. It just said when they fasted and prayed, they placed their hands on them and sent them off. So there's this, if, if there's this powerful prayer life within the local church, I think that those people who've been praying powerfully in their own context are equipped to go, you know. It, it, so they just send off a little prayer colony, you know, a little prayer community got sent away. Paul and Barnabas went together um, to pray corporately on, in a new place, and God's going to show up there too. So, Well, there's an emphasis um, in, uh, in our lives and in the American way um, and, in the, and in the American church of getting things done. And we're always concerned about getting things done and accomplishing things. And here's a here's an event where um, at the result of which something histo- of world historical importance got accomplished. Right. Uh, the gospel went to the Gentiles, and here we are today, Gentiles worshiping yeah. in Arkansas. <laughs> in, in in the very long term result, here we are today. Uh, and your point is that it came out of not an effort to get things done to plan and strategize, but an effort to seek the Lord, to pray, to practice our our faith, which involves self-renunciation, mm-hmm. giving ourselves over to God, entrusting our concerns to Him, yeah. and something massive got done right. as a result of that. Well, really, this is hard probably for a lot of people to hear, so 
I'm going to have to say it. And we've talked about it before that with the cross, one lesson that comes from the cross is um, you don't have anything to contribute. If the Son of God came and performed his work by dying and leaving everybody behind, you probably aren't that important. Um, and, and that I think that the ancient lie, the first lie and the one that undergirds even our noblest efforts is this, that you can be good enough to deserve eternal life or immortality. Remember the serpent comes to the woman and he says, hey, you're, you're not going to die because you will know good from evil. I mean, I think that's the implication. And, and so the further and the deeper lie is that if you know good and evil, you will navigate life in such a way that you can avoid death and live forever without God's help. Hmm. So anytime somebody um, has this resentment toward God for giving, um, say, mercy to one person and not another, I had a conversation with somebody on, on Sunday about this. It was a great and good, honest, sincere conversation. But there's this lie that lives in human society, and that is that that most people are basically good enough for God to save. You know, because we know good from evil, and if we do more good than evil, then God ought to save us. And that's a lie. That if anybody's ever saved, even Mother Teresa or your grandma, um, that it's going to be because God has shown them mercy. But if it's mercy, it's He didn't owe it to them. Okay, so there's this this ancient belief that we can do good, that we're here to do good, and that if we do enough good, that we can cheat death. Um, and even if we don't believe in an afterlife, we will cheat death by leaving an indelible mark on this planet. Mm -hmm. Okay, so there's that's the ancient lie. You can rise from the mortal coil through your own efforts, and thereby cheat death in some way if only just to have a building named after you, mm -hmm. okay? Yeah. That's, man, that is at the very heart of what is of the broken system. So Jesus comes and he's this one person, dude, he's performing miracles that there's multitudes lining up behind him. And he says, hey guys, now that everything's going great, I'm gonna go and I'm gonna be sentenced to death and I'm gonna be executed. And that there's this, this complete divestiture, uh, you know, if that's a word, of, our potential, mm -hmm. that there's a relinquishing. And, and that's why I'm saying corporate prayer, it needs to start there because it's where we say, I can't do it. You know, I don't have anything to give here. I don't have anything to bring. And it's the thing that I chase, that we chase when we are pursuing significance and our own worth through our own actions and our own accomplishments, that that is the essential ancient lie that the gospel is here to renounce and to dispel. When John says he has appeared to undo the works of the devil. Okay, those are the works of the devil. The works of the devil aren't just crime and, and all of this, that, that really that they are the aspirational actions of human beings that become genocidal behavior when somebody frustrates it enough, right? It's certainly capable of, of all kinds of atrocities, but in its intention is always to leave an indelible mark, to make the world a better place. And so it's a false religion. You know, if it were just, if the devil's goal was just to get people to be bad, he wouldn't have a very good sales pitch. But if his goal is to get people to make the world a better place, right? Mm-hmm. Now we're like, hey, maybe this guy's onto something, you know? Yeah, he's got horns and a fork, you know, pointy tail, but he's onto something, right? Yeah, <laughs> it's like, uh, it's, it's why there can be a, a Luciferian movement in our society, either named or unnamed as such. Um, so the ancient, this ancient lie, it needs to be dispelled. And the way we dispel it is through, through prayer, if we go out to do before we pray, then I think that we've begun to co-opt the Christian movement into the devil's agenda. Mm -hmm. 
And that's a that's a scary thought. But and, and so we need to be critical of that instinct that we have, that we just need to make the world a better place or we need to do good things. I remember having this internal dialogue. You know, I really, for most of my life, I've wanted to just alleviate poverty. Um, and I remember one time, you know, just things haven't worked out for me to be able to really invest my whole self in that. And uh, and I remember thinking, I don't care if you don't want me to do it, God, I'm going to do it anyway. You know, <laughs> I'm just like, wait, what am I saying? Uh, you know, that, that even something noble becomes demonic if it is done with this kind of self-congratulatory, virtue-based approach. Because that's what it is. It's really an arrogance that masks itself as virtue. And um, I have, I've never seen that not be true. Uh, so that's it's why corporate prayer is just so so important. So corporate place prayer, to begin. you're describing corporate prayer in a really deep and theological way. You're you're not advocating that the first step in growing a church is to have prayer meetings. You're saying the first step in embracing the cross life is to gather for prayer because that's an expression together. Mm -hmm. of applying the cross to our lives. Right. I'm saying if you are a mature Christian, you want to disciple other people, you should probably invite them to pray with you um, and just bring them to the to the throne room. Hmm. And so that's kind of... If, if we're saying, okay, getting somebody into regular Bible study, and not that that's bad, I keep hitting say that, but I'm just... There are other functions and means. How did Paul disciple people? How did um, the leaders of the church grow other members of the church without ready access to Scripture, without uh, this unbalanced emphasis on an increase in knowledge? What functions, what um, exercises should people be engaged in to grow as Christians? And I'm just saying that corporate prayer is a great place to start and proceed and to finish. It from the, you know God can tell us what to do there. Now, what else should we be doing together? Mm -mm. Good because question. in addition to praying together to God, we're going to want to tell one another things. Yeah. And if the emphasis isn't so much on teaching the Bible, right? but rather the gospel, then your point number two in today's episode is gospel rehearsal. We're going to want to speak to each other this gospel message. Yeah. How do we rehearse the right. gospel? Right, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, Does that mean like acting it out, like doing pantomimes? Maybe, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, uh, you say that, but what's interesting uh, about it when Paul is is calling the Galatians on the carpet and he says the he says how could you turn away when you when the crucifixion when Christ as crucified has been held up like a placard before your eyes when you you've actually seen it with your eyes well here here are people in Asia Minor they probably weren't there they're Gentiles they weren't there when Jesus was crucified and he's saying this has been acted out for you this has been demonstrated to you and in that, the only thing I can come to is, is that he means in his own persecution there. That when the Jew and Gentile came together against the gospel and threw Paul and his troop out of the city, he's like, you've seen it. You've seen the thing we've preached. And so I, I think that there are, we ought to be doing lots of gospel reenactments, <laughs> but mm -hmm. just not not scripted ones. Uh, just places where we where we fearlessly you know tell the truth and and let the um, those who oppose play their part. Um, so that's one thing. Well, and and again through these three things, I'm just I'm trying to get to very and I I don't know if this is a, a worthy thing to do, but. I'm trying to get to the very ancient faith because it seems to be what Jesus left us, you know, um, that when he left this group of 12, what did they have on board, right? What did he expect them to change the world with through his power? Um, you know, what, 
And it seems if they just had this message, um, what do you do with it, right? Um, and so it, if you look through the New Testament, what we will see is that when they came together, corporate prayer was obviously big. The Holy Spirit seems to have come in to those moments through songs and through prophetic words and stuff like that. But it was all centered around um, a hub. And without that, without that hub, um, as we've seen, enthusiastic movements can go off the rails. And Alex, you've been talking about your background in the Pentecostal church and how things can sometimes go sideways. Something that might begin in the Holy Spirit can begin to get toxic or unhelpful over time. And, you know, why does that happen? And I would suggest that it's because people have kind of failed to rehearse the gospel, to recite it to one another. Uh, Colossians 3.16 says, Let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms, hymns, and songs of the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. So it seems to be describing that the gospel is at the center and it's expressing itself in the songs and the hymns and the prophetic words. Right, right. And so we get these these Christ hymns throughout the New Testament. Um, I don't know how many of them there are, how many we've acknowledged. One that I think is somewhat universally acknowledged is 2 Timothy 2, 11 through 13 that says, um, if we died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we disown him, he will also disown us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot disown himself. So there's a a recitation. You know, we talked about last, uh, a couple of times ago, Here, when Paul says, here's a trustworthy saying, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Of whom I am the worst. Right. <laughs> so there are these these ways that we find to keep the essence of the gospel before our eyes. Okay. So, Nathan, are you talking about expository preaching? Uh, you know, we have this tradition in the Protestant church, and it's, the, uh, it's expository preaching. And when we gather, we, the preacher, if he's a really good, faithful, or she is a really good, faithful, expository preacher, they'll have a passage assigned for that day, and mm-hmm. they'll exposit it, based on its historical setting and apply it to today. So uh, that's is or isn't what you're talking about. Well, it's not what I'm talking about just because they couldn't have done that in the first century. And, and that doesn't mean we shouldn't do it. We can, and the Bible's a gift, and it would be very hypocritical for me to be against expository preaching since that's what I spend most of my time doing, uh, a lot of it. And... I think expository preaching is important because it requires a humility that topical preaching doesn't. Um, with expository preaching, we have to resign our agenda to someone else. Now, that may just be the authors of the Bible, and we're saying, "Hey, you know what? I, I just want to know what they said, and I'm gonna, I'm gonna try to relay that." And that's that's a good exercise. It's a good kind of relinquishing of my own thoughts. Uh, it's a teachability on the part of the teacher. Like you can trust somebody who's themselves teachable. And so I, I think expository preaching is helpful to the church. I wouldn't know the things that I know had I not been forced to exposit the Bible mm-hmm. and have to take a, a kind of a humble approach to it. I mean, I'm probably the most humble person that you know, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Uh, but but to but to come to it with a, with a posture of learning um, and to say I don't know what this says and I you know I, there have been Sundays or there have been weeks where I've just been in a heap you know just collapsed in frustration um, on the brink of just renouncing it all saying this is just a rag that a bunch of backward nomads wrote and 
why am I even trying to teach this? You know, just visions of myself getting into the pulpit and saying, guys, let's just all go home, right? Okay. That's where I was on a Thursday, you know, after wrestling with a text for four days, you know, writing it on a whiteboard, reading it out loud to myself, listening to it, um, looking at it in multiple translations, crying out to God in utter desperation, crying out to God in utter frustration and anger. You know, why did you write this garbage? Or why did you, why am I in this spot? You know, uh, why did I say I would teach on this passage? And, and then this moment where just like, you know, would just explode out in, into this vivid um, landscape. And then just at a loss for how to express it. So all that to say is I highly commend that process <laughs> if, if you, if you uh, have the fortitude to somehow survive it. Um, but somehow I think for you, it has illuminated the gospel. Those insights yeah. that have come have not been ex so much insights into the, the, um, the historical setting, the grammatical construction. Those, have, those, those, those things have played a part. But when it's really exploded with life, it's been, oh, this is pointing to the gospel or this is illuminating yes. the gospel or the, 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 the gospel is what makes sense out of this. Right. Um, so I, I reason I brought this up is because in my mind is because is because I think your point about gospel rehearsal does have something to say to us about our practice of expository preaching. Yes. And how it needs to be a gospel rehearsal. Right. Or else it's falling short. Yes, yes, and Paul speaks of that in Second Corinthians three about how when your when a person's heart turns to the Lord, that their view of Scripture changes and they can see Jesus there face to face. So that's kind of the experience that I'm describing, and so it gives the Bible new significance, new waves of meaning, um, new potential. In compared to just line item reading it as a morality tale, because it's not a very good morality tale. <laughs> a lot of a lot of immorality happens in the Bible, and it is not critiqued, right? <laughs> you know, people do awful things. You would not be friends with most of the people in the Old Testament, or want to be seen in public with them. And and God doesn't seem to utter a peep as to why what they've done is wrong. It's doing something besides teaching us how to be moral people. If it, if it were just teaching us to be moral people, then it would be nothing more than that lie I just described. This notion that we can ascertain good and evil and somehow deserve immortality. Um, so, yeah. Uh, but I think that one thing that, and it's something that happens in our worship culture. Songs, uh, you know, I... Just confess, I, I like Hillsong's music a lot of times, and uh, but what's powerful about it is, is it's about the cross. It's about the gospel. It's a rehearsal of the gospel, um, and those are the deepest and most powerful songs that we encounter. A song like "In Christ Alone," which is, you know, what is it? Probably going on twenty years old now, but it's it's a classic because it is this recitation of the gospel. Mm -hmm. Um, and we need to emphasize that. I would, I would think what I would like to see is, is that churches would encourage their members to find new ways to express the gospel. That that's how we do church. Come and, and express the gospel through your own gift mix. So if you're a sculptor, if you're an artist, if you're a poet, if you're... Right, I hike haikus. Uh, you know, if, if you tell short stories, you know, find ways to rehearse the gospel that are memorable that we can dwell on through the week. I think that's a wonderful gift we could give each other. And it grew up out of a very simple group of people who knew they needed to get together and recite these simple hymns. You know, that would just Christ, though he was in the form of God, didn't consider. Equality with God, a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself mm -hmm. and, you know, became a human, took on human form and, and being found in the form of a human became a servant and, and obedient even to death on the cross. And therefore God has exalted him to the right hand, mm -hmm. uh, to his own right hand, that at the name of every, at Jesus, every tongue should confess. There you go. That, you know, that's, 
Philippians 2. Um, that's not verbatim, but it's a memorable enough recitation of the facts of the gospel that I can repeat it in its essence without attempting to memorize it. Uh, and it's those kinds of things, I think, that if we got together and, and our meetings were about reciting the gospel, mm-hmm. that that was assumed. Um, and and then fresh insights and applications emerge from that. Right. As we rehearse the gospel together, people are then saying, you know, I'm seeing it now. I'm seeing how it applies to my uh, parenting relationship, to this conflict at work, to my marital uh, strife. And this, that's, what we're, that's what we're aiming for. That's what we right. hope to happen. We're trusting yeah. will happen. Yeah, well, and that's that's what Paul, you know, in notice in, in Colossians 3, and this has kind of jumped out at me as I was reading it again this time. Um, so he says, as you teach and admonish each other, right? Now, he says, with all wisdom, that the cross, that the, that the gospel message, not, not just the cross, but the whole gospel message, it has become for us wisdom you know what what are people seeking if i it, let's say i hung out a, a shingle and i said i'm going to be teaching a five-part seminar on raising godly kids right man i'd have a ton of people show up to that why because they want advice they want things in their life to work out they love their kids and even if they just kind of believe in god they they want their kids to be good people right uh, and you can get a lot of people to turn out. But unfortunately, the, when we offer <clears throat> advice, oftentimes um, we're diminishing the cross because we're not connecting the dots. Or maybe we're offering advice that doesn't really even flow out of the cross. Maybe we're continuing to feed that lie that if you take a virtue-based approach to life, things will work out. And that's not true. And and I think a lot of people have had painful experience of that. Um, but... Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 1.30. It says, It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus who has become for us wisdom from God. That all the wisdom that we need, if, if you need direction in life, um, that there isn't some separate wisdom out there. If it is, then James says it's earthly, sensual, demonic. I don't want that wisdom. You know, It might work in the short term, but it's not going to pay off. Okay, he says Christ has become for us wisdom from God. That is our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. So we're coming together. We're coming together to boast in the Lord, but we're coming together to receive the wisdom that he offers through this simple message. All right, so what we've done is uh, we've said corporate prayer is is an expression Mm -hmm. of uh, retooling discipleship. Yeah, we've said gospel rehearsal is an expression of mm-hmm. retooling discipleship, and finally, loving confrontation is yeah. an expression of retooling discipleship. Yeah, this is a hard one. Do you guys have any experiences of either uh, non-confrontation in church or confrontation mm-hmm. in church? I've, I've had unloving confrontation. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and then we've had. Loving non-confrontation, and of course, non-confrontation isn't loving, but we think of it as loving. So we feel like, well, how can I love this person and confront them? If I confront them, they'll crumble, uh, they'll be crushed, or it, or, or I or I'll be crushed, or, yeah, <laughs> or they'll crush me in return, yeah, right, yeah. or um, or I'll blow up at them. I'm so upset about this, I yeah. can't, um, I can't talk about this, um, and so I, and I won't be loving. So th- these are things I think I experience and that I think keep us from confrontation that, we, that is needed in order to help one another grow. Mm-hmm. Right, yeah. And I'm, my experience in church has been that confrontation is something that we just kind of avoided like the plague of it. Oftentimes we find any way around just shooting straight with somebody and telling them, hey, you know, what you're doing is not okay or whatever, that um, we would just move them, relegate them to a certain area, make them somebody else's problem, have them serve in some capacity where they weren't going to cause too many issues, that there's a lot of politics and nuancing that comes just to avoid the confrontation. Now, 
why would somebody do that? Why would we try to nuance somebody, try to mitigate perhaps whatever negative behaviors, you know, and the consequences of their negative behaviors rather than just tell them what you're doing is hurtful? Why would we do that, do you think? Well, um, I, I think there is, as I mentioned, the sense that if I tell this person that, they'll be crushed. Their, their ego is too fragile. They can't handle it. Mm-hmm. And that would threaten the group. Yeah. Well, they might, yeah, they might leave. Other people might feel like they were wrongly treated. Um, then they would leave. So let's just all get along, right? Um, Paul says something interesting in, in Galatians chapter 4. Uh, he is really not pulling very many punches. Galatians is probably the most confrontational of Paul's letters. Um, and he says, he says this, Have I now become your enemy by telling you the truth? What a great question. <laughs> Does telling people the truth make enemies? Sure. All the time. Right. <laughs> sure. And yet, what, what motivates somebody to withhold the truth? or to tell lies. Is it the interest of the other person or is it self-interest? Yeah, it's usually self-preservation yeah. in the form of either protecting my ego or protecting the group that I belong to. Right, now Paul is, he's really bringing this rebuke in the midst of a situation where there were some teachers who had come in and who had won the allegiance of some of the Galatian people, these Judaizers had come in, right? And they're offering, the reason the Galatian letter is so antithetical to this human conformity, the reason Paul says, if I were still trying to please people, I would not be a servant of Christ, is because the Galatians were being proselytized. They were coming under that same energy that Jesus condemned. And he says, you go and you work so hard to proselytize one person. So here are these, these Jewish people who are seeing these people who are coming to worship their God. And now they're like, well, let's welcome them in and we're going to surround them. And we're going to offer them a place among us. And all they have to do is go through an elective surgery below the belt, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and and Paul is saying no, because that that is you can to human pressure. These Judaizers are doing what Jesus rebuked. They are making sons of hell. Mm-hmm. Paul said, you had already become children of God, and now these guys are wanting to make you something less. Okay? Um, and, and so he says this, those people are zealous to win you over, but for no good. What they want... Now, the NIV says this, okay, and, I, and this is important to note. What they want is to alienate you from us so that you may have zeal for them. I want to point out that in the Greek, that there's no justification for inserting from us, okay? That the actual passage is that they want to cut you off so that you may have zeal for them. The reason the NIV puts in from us is to clarify what seems to be kind of a dangling modifier there or something. But notice, what, are the, what do you think are the assumptions? What, what were they being cut off from by these Judaizers? Was it from Paul? Or was it from God? Right. Because somewhere in there he says, you've fallen from grace. Right, right. You've been severed. He, said, he actually says in Galatians 5, if you, if you accept circumcision, you're snipped. Mm-hmm. But that snip isn't just the end of your, you know what, but it is from Christ, right? You've been snipped from Christ. And, and so he's saying they want to snip you. They want to cut you off, that you have a connection to Christ, and they want to cut that with their mm-hmm. flint knife, right? Yeah. But what does it say about common church thinking that the NIV would insert from us? It's about an us and them. It's a group dynamic, right? Hey, you're in our group. They're trying to they're trying to steal you away from our group and take them, right? You know, take you into their group, right? Rather than you're connected to the vine, right? <laughs> Don't let them dupe you into thinking that you have to be connected to something else, 
Right. What would have kept Paul from telling them the truth would be that if he longed for their allegiance or he thought he needed it, if he told himself, hey, I can't alienate these guys because I'm going to have a good influence in them, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to not say what I need to say. You see, that goes back to the old lie of saying, I need to have influence. And I don't want to squander my influence over this issue, so I'm going to just kind of skirt around it. Okay, I, that is the demonic lie. The truth of the gospel says, look, you know, I, I don't have influence. All of us need to be connected to Jesus. And you're, you're doing something that is cutting you off from him. So I'm going to tell you at the risk of you becoming my enemy, I'm going to tell you the truth. Um, and, I, and I think that in church, we're so used to the idea that human influence is part and parcel of discipleship that we need to insert from us in Galatians 4.17 because we assume, hey, these Galatians surely had some human who was responsible for their spiritual growth. And Paul's saying, no, that's the problem. <laughs> you know, that's the whole problem. I'm, I'm trying to get you reattached to your faith. I, it, but you, you've let people come in between you and Jesus. He's, he's not, the idea that, that he would be upset that his place was being, you know, pushed out is, is completely opposite of the whole argument of the Galatian letter. But that, but that people who are very theologically trained and know the original languages could twist this verse like this to, to imply that Paul would do the very opposite thing that he's meaning to do. Mm. You know, it's it's alarming to me, and I and I've shared this. I don't think they realized they did that. I don't think right. they realized they implied. They that. didn't. They didn't. But the fact that they didn't realize it is even more terrifying. Yeah. Right. It, it kind of underlies a, you know, I, I think a blind spot that all of us have that um, there's a a right group and there's a wrong group, mm -hmm. rather than there's just me connected to Jesus. Right. <laughs> and. And you connected to Jesus. Mm -hmm. and, and you then, connected to and, Jesus. And loving confrontation is helping one another stay connected to Jesus. Yeah. Right. And so, hey, you know, Nathan, I see that, you know, you're being pressured to conform to this thing so that you feel like you can fit into the body of Christ. And I'm here to say, cut that out. You're already right. connected to Jesus and nothing comes between that. Right. And if I'm afraid to make you angry, I'm already conforming to the elementary principles of the world. I mean, I'm, I'm seeking to please people, and that's not the point. If I'm free of the elementary principles of the world, the one way I can show that is by telling the truth. And, and we talked about this at lunch the other day, but you know, in Ephesians 6, where he talks about the armor of God, right? Now, for Ephesians 6, and we'll do a whole podcast on this, but the, but the context is of persecution, right? So you're, you're in conflict with people. And we would understand Ephesians 6 a lot better if we understood that, this, that the spiritual war isn't something going on between your ears, but it is something going on between Christians and the world, um, and that Paul is telling people how to prepare themselves to go and have a conflict with someone in the world. And the first thing that we need to put on is the belt of truth. If we go to have any sort of conflict, if we're in a place where what we think, say, or do is being critiqued, the worst thing we could do is pander, minimize, spin. All of that is giving fodder to the enemy and we're going to get caught with our pants down. That's why we need a belt of truth. And, and how much more as we are in the body. And so Paul says in Ephesians 4, he says, don't lie to each other because you're part of one another. Right? Mm -hmm. right? Members of one another. Yeah. And, and so yeah. And he says, therefore, speaking the truth in love, we will grow up into him in all things. And isn't that the point? Is, it, is the point to have a big group of people together? Is it the point to modify one another's behavior so that we're somewhat more moral? Or is the point for all of us to become just like Jesus? And, and if, if somebody says, well, if you keep pressuring me to become like Jesus, I'm out of here. We'll have to say goodbye. You know, if it gets down to just two of us, but we're all in agreement that, yeah, we're going to confront one another until we become like Jesus, 
You know, because look, here's the thing. There is no risk. If somebody has truly been dealt with at the cross, there is no risk to them to being confronted. I've already admitted I'm a capital offender and I'm not worth shooting. So what are you going to say to me that I haven't already admitted? Mm -hmm. Right? What are you going to say about me? How can you hurt my ego if I've truly been dealt with at the cross? You could be wrong. You could say, hey, when you said that, I think that came from a place of bitterness and that you are just being critical. And you know what? You could be wrong. But have you hurt me? No. What, was there any risk? If you came to me and you said, I honestly feel, think this way about you. And I'm like, well, thank you. Thank you for sharing that. I don't agree. I can't see and that's it. That's fine. Yeah. You know, that's fine. Maybe you're right. Maybe next year I will agree. Right now I don't. And so can we, can we go on? Can we be brothers? Yes, of course. You said your piece. I thank you for being willing to say it. I, I see in you the faith of the son that you were willing to say that. Thank you for that, brother. I don't agree. Let's go on, right? Now, if you were right, you've blessed me. So the only, the only thing that can happen where the gospel is reigning in a society, the only results of confrontation that's loving will always be good, even if you're wrong. Because you say it, you're wrong, that's okay. I'm glad you said it. If you didn't say it, you'd be harboring it. You'd be, you know, violating your own conscience. You need to say it. If you're wrong, that's okay. You haven't hurt me. You haven't hurt our relationship. Now, if you're right, you've helped me and you've helped you. And we're both getting to grow like Jesus. So loving confrontation, it, it ought to be just an instinct. It ought to be the normal culture and environment of people who've been dealt with by the gospel. Mm -hmm. But it's um, in our in our culture, it is uh, very far from something we, that we feel is natural. Just as just as gathering for prayer is unnatural, uh, it is unnatural to confront one another. And but we are called by the gospel to do both: corporate prayer, gospel rehearsal, loving confrontation. It's that middle point. Gospel. If we keep the gospel central, if it's it is, if it is really shaping us, it will lead us to prayer. If it is really shaping us, it will lead us to take those steps of faith and do the do the loving confrontation that is right. required yep good talk thanks everybody if you have questions email us at discussion at faithrecoverypodcast.com we'll see you next time adios